welcome to episode 171 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's Word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, I want one of our good friends, Leonard Ravenhill, to talk to us about prayer. Let's dive in. Over the last several weeks, we've been talking about prayer. And one of the things I just love about just even talking about prayer is that it really is this deep, rich cavern where there is so much yet to be explored. And while I don't merely want to talk about prayer, I want us to actually be praying. There is a time for just being exhorted and encouraged to pray. Well, I thought it'd be a great way to wrap up this mini series on prayer that we've been going through by listening to a man who really had a grasp on prayer. As I look back upon Christian history, there are a lot of men that I would point to and say, wow, they really exhibited a life of prayer. I love reading Ian Bounds for that reason. He has such an articulation of what true prayer was, or David Brainerd, or men of that caliber. Well, it's interesting that Leonard Ravenhill is one of those men who had a bold preaching style And yet he was a man given to prayer. In fact, it's been reported that he would often spend several hours every single day in prayer. Well, I want us to listen to one of his sermons on prayer. It's not as popular as some of his sermons like the judgment seat of Christ, but the sermon is a great articulation of what true prayer is. And it gives a whole bunch of illustrations of men and women throughout Christian history who gave their lives to prayer. People like Ian Bounds and Praying Payson and John Hyde and Reese Howells and Tozier and Robert Murray McShane and Duncan Campbell. Now, I talked about a few of those in a recent podcast, but I just love Leonard Ravenhill's passion for prayer and his love for these great saints of old who gave themselves to prayer. Well, the sermon comes out of 1 Samuel chapter 1, and Ravenhill is going to be looking at Hannah's prayer for a child. Well, I really just pray that this sermon would just be an exhortation and encouragement to your soul, not to condemn you of what you're not doing, but to inspire you to live a life of what Ravenhill would call desperate, vigorous, travailing prayer. So without further ado, here is Leonard Ravenhill's sermon, Desperate Prayer. Those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified, I thought of an old professor in the University of Edinburgh. He taught Hebrew to the seminary students <clears throat> and he always took the Bible as his textbook. And one morning he read to them the 53rd chapter in Isaiah. This man was a Scotsman, but they called him, they nicknamed him Rabbi Duncan because he had such a profound knowledge of Hebrew. And uh, He read this 53rd chapter of Isaiah one morning, read it in Hebrew, read it in English, and when he got to the place where, as you remember, it says he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. And then he stopped and he said, listen to this, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. 
We make a great deal about the sufferings of Jesus, the physical sufferings, the bleeding wounds. And yet, it wasn't his body that was offered, it was his soul that was made an offering for sin, the word said. And they said the tears crossed down his face and he said, and his soul was made an offering for sin. Gentlemen, it was damnation. And he took it joyfully. The students were discussing this profound teaching and one of them said what I say about every man I meet. I'd like to hear him pray. So at night they went up to his bedroom, his dorm. They looked through the keyhole and they'd watched him go into the bedroom. He was kneeling there in his nightshirt. He just had a candle at the side of the bed. And he read his scripture quietly. And then he put his hands together. The fellow said, he's going to pray, he's going to pray. Well, let me look through the keyhole. Wait a minute, shall I watch? And they all wanted to just squint and run and squint and run, you know. And this man with such profound knowledge, not only of Hebrew, but of God, put his hands together and said, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child. Pity my simplicity. Suffer me to come to thee. And I'm increasingly conscious that with greatness there's simplicity. With the deepest knowledge of God there's an awful conscious of ignorance. I want to share some thoughts with you tonight on the almost the greatest exercise we can have as Christians. As I've repeatedly said this week, that prayer is preoccupation with our needs and praise is preoccupation with our blessings and worship is preoccupation with God himself. And I think that prayer should, pardon me, I think that praise should precede petition and I'm sure that worship should precede petition. Men are always putting a label on the age in which we live. You know, it's a scientific age, it's this age, it's that, the other, and I'm quite sure it's an age of rush and push and crush. And there are very few people that want to wait upon the Lord and renew their strength. Wait upon the Lord. And again I say, wait upon the Lord. The classic prayer to me, the classic prayer of the intercessor in the Old Testament It's made by a woman. The church is always described in the New Testament as a woman because she brings to birth. There are three phases in a child's birth. One is conception, the other is gestation, and the third is birth. You can't change the order, it's not possible. The same is true in revival. There's a sense in which you can't accelerate it and you can't delay it. I was thinking as we sat here tonight, well let me say this, I, I'm glad I got in here when the tidal wave came. You missed the meeting last night, you missed the tidal wave. <clears throat> the glory of the Lord filled the temple. But by the same token, 
If people knew tonight that God was going to fulfill his promise and suddenly descend in majesty, not, not for the rapture, but to visit us with revival, the house would be crowded. As I said, I hang on to a word. In Malachi it says, the Lord whom ye seek. I thought many other things for years. I thought miracles and saw them. I thought crowds and got them. I thought friendship with famous people and had some. And there wasn't much in anything of it. But the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. And remember those shepherds that night didn't expect that the prophecy that had been said hundreds of years ago would be fulfilled that night. They were looking after their stupid sheep. And the scripture says, suddenly there was a sound of a heavenly host. And those men in the upper room that had been waiting there for ten days suddenly, <coughs> suddenly had an invasion. It says that suddenly there was a sound of a rushing mighty wind. And Malachi says, the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. And one day God is going to, just as you pull a switch, he's going to descend. I mentioned this morning there was a revival. It began just as the clock got to 11 o'clock on the 13th of August, 1727. It began with a group of people being quarrelsome and arguing about doctrine. And somebody got them together and said, let's forget our differences and unite here fundamentally on the word of God, on the things we agree on. On the virgin birth, on the redemptive work of Jesus by himself without any help, on the physical resurrection and on the work of the Holy Spirit. And just as the clock got to eleven, as though it was going to strike eleven, suddenly God descended on a bunch of people. One of the most unique things in history happened there at Hernhut. That prayer meeting lasted without a break for one hundred years. Never stopped. The longest prayer meeting I can find recorded in history. Little boys and girls prayed in the spirit. If you went into the sanctuary at two o'clock, you might find thirty people there. If you went at two in the afternoon, you might find seven or eight little girls there, weeping, praying for revival. They'd been born in that atmosphere. They learned the vocabulary. Somehow God invaded those tremendous little personalities. That was the greatest move, revival move, the greatest missionary move through the Moravians. John Wesley was really converted to a Moravian. Peter Bowler. The Moravians through Zinzendorf gave us some of our greatest hymns. You see, you, you take on the likeness of the atmosphere in which you're born. If you're born in a flimsy revival, most likely you'll be a flimsy Christian for a long while until you get your feet. If you're born in a fire, you'll never be satisfied to live in the smoke. If all you have is water baptism, you can swim the rest of your life, but uh, there's another baptism too. A baptism of fire. And there's another baptism which less people have. Jesus says, as a baptism, are you able to take the baptism that I'm baptized with? The thing that the Apostle Paul knew, and yet he, he still desired that he may know more of it, the fellowship of his suffering. I remember Mr. Chadwick said he'd often been in prayer meetings with preachers when they would almost scream, Oh, that I may know thee and the power of thy resurrection. But that's where they stop. Would you like to know resurrection life? It's easy. I hear people saying, Lord, fill me, and I think they should knock the F off and put a K on it. 
And if you let him kill you, then he'd raise you up in resurrection life. But you see, the only way to get resurrection life is to die first. And Mr. Chadwick said, well, if you're willing to die, you'll get resurrection life. God won't hold it back. And then from there, it isn't just joy bells necessarily. You know, we'll have all eternity. You won't be able to weep in eternity. You weep at the judgment seat, most likely. Revelation says there are no tears in heaven. It also says God shall wipe away all tears. Where's he going to wipe them away? No tears in heaven. Just at the judgment seat. Our last regret, our last miserable looking back at all the places we missed, all the burdens we wouldn't carry, all the spiritual pregnancies we wouldn't have, all the loads we wouldn't lift, all the disobediences, all, all, all crowding on us. The pastor prayed tonight so beautifully there. Sure, be wonderful. I, I tell my crowd, my, my wonderful church, nearly, nearly 25 of us. <clears throat> and I say to them, I don't get too much inspiration looking at you. You're not that bright and, uh, not many of you. But I keep looking at the end of the journey when we sit down again with Abraham and with Isaac. In that great, marvelous banquet. That's going to be really something. Away there in eternity. And there's just one uh, horrible experience before you get your feet at the banquet, and that is that we all have to go to the judgment seat. That's about the only thing keeps me sane. It's almost terrifying. But by the same token, the word of God says, and how beautiful it is. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Nobody will get a false deal or a wrong deal in that day. Well, it's been good to be with you. I don't know whether you say that, and I don't care whether you do or not. I told you what the Lord told me. As I told you, I didn't have to come here. I'd much rather have gone to New Zealand because my boy's there. And there'd be about 3,000 people a night that I just couldn't go, couldn't get free to go. My wife would have liked to have gone, bless her darling heart, but she wouldn't go without me. Sure, she's a wonderful woman. I, look, look what I've done for her for 30 years. <clears throat> but I'm glad for the, for, the, for the privilege of sharing some thoughts with you, and uh, I don't ask you to believe all I said anyhow. I asked you to obey the light he gave you. That's all. Whatsoever he says unto you, do it. All right, the first book of Samuel. We better start, shall we? First book of Samuel, the first chapter. <clears throat> I say this is a classic prayer of an intercessor. The intercessor is even beyond the person who prays, the intercessor is beyond the prayer warrior, the intercessor is the one who himself will take the load. God said more than once that he marveled that there was no intercessor. Do you think that God has kind of wound the clock up of the ages, you know, and set the alarm and said it's going to go off in, uh, say, 1978, or whatever happens? Oh, I know he knows all things in his foreknowledge, but I'm asking you, do you think he's wound up the clock of the ages and set the alarm, it's going to stop at a, start at a, stop at a certain time? Does judgment come 
by reason of time or by reason of temperature. When judgment fell on Sodom, two things happened. Abraham ceased to pray. As I said, and maybe yesterday, that not only was it true that the corruption of Sodom was so great, but the salt had lost its savour, there were not ten righteous. And if there had been ten righteous, judgment would have been postponed. While ever Abraham made representative, representation with God, he represented man before God, and while ever, me, Abraham, yes, and while ever Lot was in Sodom, God could do nothing. Read the story, that's what he said. He said, hurry up and get out. And then at that moment, judgment fell. In this chapter, we have all the necessary, I almost said ingredients, that sounds a bit too like Betty Crocker, uh, it's not a mixture, too, too many, um, all the necessary, what do we call them, attitudes, dispositions, and the true intercessor are found in this chapter. When Norman Grubb wrote his book, Reese Howell's Intercessor, and if you haven't read it, you've read, missed one of the greatest books of this generation. I said to him after, I said, uh, Norman, you, you are very daring to say that Reese Howells is an intercessor. You don't find one intercessor amongst a hundred thousand Christians. But Lenny said he, he, he was an intercessor. That's exactly what he did. That's exactly what he did. As I told you the other day, the last time I preached at that school, Bible School of Wales, I walked up some stairs when Mrs. Howells asked me to, and she showed me a door and said, my husband went in that door at six o'clock in the morning, and he stayed there till six o'clock at night every day for eleven months. Twelve hours a day along with God. That's why afterwards he had authority. As I said this morning, Elijah didn't say there'd be no rain according to God's word. He said there'd be no rain according to my word. He knew the mind of God. I'll shut up heaven. I'll open heaven. Now here is this wonderful woman, Hannah. Let's skip over this quickly here. Look in this chapter. This man went up out of the city yearly to worship. Notice that. He went to Shiloh and so forth and so on. All right. Verse 5, To Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb, and her adversary provoked her sore for to make a threat, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year. Now this wasn't some sudden thrill she had in a meeting. It wasn't some quick, unpremeditated prayer. She had been provoked. Just pin that down, will you? There had been provocation. It says in the middle of verse 7 that she wept. It says in the middle of verse 8, Why eatest thou not? So she was fasting. It says in the same verse that she was grieved. It says in verse 10 that she was in bitterness of soul. It says in verse 10 again, not only did she weep, but she wept sore. It says at the end of verse 15, she poured out her soul in prayer. That always reminds me of Jesus. Obviously, he walked into the garden of Gethsemane, and then he knelt in prayer, and then he prostrated himself in prayer. She prayed, yes, but she wept in her prayer. And not only wept in her prayer, she wept until she ate. She was sore. 
And not only wept until she was sore, she prostrated herself in prayer. So here are the ingredients again that she was provoked. She wept. She didn't eat. She was grieved. Verse 10, she was in bitterness of spirit. Verse 11, she vowed a vow. The same verse, she had an affliction. And uh, in verse 12, she continued praying. And in verse 15, in the middle, she had a sorrowful spirit. And at the end of that verse, she poured out her soul in prayer. And in verse 16, she had a complaint and a grief. Now, I suggest that's quite a mixture. A complaint, a grief, a bitterness, a sorrow, weeping. For what? For what? Because she was a barren woman. It was a reproach. I remember going down High Holborn in London some years ago. There's a little woman there, looked very much like Charlie Chaplin. Her feet were out like this, and she had a little old dress on, and she just walked about at that speed, and she put a letter in the, in the mailbox. And a friend said to me, do you know who that is? I said, no. That's the widow of Hugh Price Hughes, one of the greatest preachers London ever had. And in the autobiography of her father, his daughter says this, when my daddy came from the sanctuary on a Sunday night, that great big Methodist temple in London, it might be packed to the rafters, right to the very end of the, of the high gallery, and the people would hang on every word. He was a master of preaching. He was eloquent. He was passionate. You think he was seeing visions as though he could see into eternity when he preached. And at the end he would sing, let's sing a word of welcome, you know, I hear thy welcome voice that calls me Lord to thee. And he would ask people to come and they wouldn't come and he would put his hand up and say good night. And she said, Daddy would come home and take his coat off, I don't want any tea, I, I, I don't want anything. And she said he would throw himself on his bed and weep and weep, why don't they come? He was inconsolable. Not because he failed to catch fish, but somebody slammed the door in the face of the Son of God. In other words, he said, I've got to hell rather than repent. You think it's fun to preach? I go home many times, break my heart. Every meeting is a favor of life unto life or death unto death. Somebody will die in this meeting tonight. You might go to a hundred meetings after this and Almighty God has an obligation to knock at the door of your heart. Who do you think he is? You notice what he says? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now that isn't really at the heart of man. It's at the door of the church. There are some churches tonight God can't get in. But he does come and knock at the door of the hearts of individuals, sure enough he does. But he's not obligated to, to, to keep knocking, knocking, knocking. Now this woman is praying for what? You say she prayed for a child. No, she didn't. Well, what in the world did she pray for? A man-child. And the Lord gave her a man-child. No, he didn't. Well, he didn't give her a girl. No, he didn't. But he gave her a child? Yes, he did. Well, if she didn't get a man-child and didn't get a little girl, what in the world did she get? She got a prophet. God did more than she could either ask or think. And you see, this little fellow was born of prayer, conceived in prayer. I see some of these young women going around pregnant and smoking. I feel, uh, boy, if you weren't pregnant, I could almost hit you on the jaw. Do you know why? Because that child in that womb has already, in its conception, 
also conceived an appetite for nicotine. Pastor friend of mine told me in England a while back he said, you know, we had a problem here with a baby. It was born and from the moment it was born it screamed and screamed and they did every jolly old thing they could do to cry. Every old wife's tale, you know. Give it some cinder tea and poor thing. They experimented on it more than a guinea pig. The only thing it yelled. Morning, noon and night. Didn't seem to sleep. Yelling, 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 yelling. And finally somebody said, oh, there's a new doctor in town. Ah, you bring him along. He's got the answer. And in our homes, of course, we have a fireplace. And the young man was smoking as he came in. And he took the last pull and he, and he threw the cigarette in the fireplace. And he just leaned over the crib and said, well... The baby quit. <laughs> oh, the mother said, how wonderful. What did you do? Gave the baby what it wanted. You didn't give it anything. I did. I gave it a breath of smoke. Your baby wanted to smoke. It was born with an appetite for smoke. He used to see gorgeous girls almost blind you with their beauty come into Teen Challenge pregnant. The little baby already has a habit. It's born handicapped. It's got a drag at it. They'll scream and cry. The baby cries. You can't control it. Why? Because it was born in the atmosphere of drugs. Conceived in the atmosphere of drugs. By the same token, this little fellow somehow mysteriously. You see, he took on the nature of his mother. Ma, you women who are pregnant, you better, you ought to pray. Now my mother did what, while I was coming along. She sang. She was always singing. Not for sorrow, don't think that, for joy that I was coming along. And she had a beautiful voice. Oh, how she used to sing. I used to love to hear my mother sing. The result was I loved to sing. For three years I traveled with a revival party and I never preached once. I just sang, 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 sang. Left to sing. What happened to this little fellow? He became a man of prayer. No, she did not get a child, merely, or a man-child, but she got what? She got a prophet. That's why right now, to me, disagree if you like. I told you the pastor would disagree where he was wrong, but anyhow, uh, <clears throat> disagree if you like. But you see, every period of barrenness brought forth a supernatural child. Again, there came a day when Rachel wasn't happy to bear, have the nicest clothes and the jewelry. One day she comes, her hair's blowing in the wind, and she says to Jacob, Give me children or I die! And I said to you and say to you again, whether you're a pastor or what, the only reason you don't have revival in your church is you're willing to live without it. And when it becomes a matter of life or death, really in your life, you won't care about anything on earth. What did Rachel get? Did she get a child? No. Yes, she got a child. Did she get a prophet? No. God didn't want another prophet. You see, very often when we pray and God answers prayer, we think that God's answering our prayer. God was solving his own problem. He wasn't solving Hannah's problem. He needed a prophet up the road 20 years ahead. And you remember when they put him out of office, when they put this marvelous man Samuel out of office, he says, all right, put me out. And there was no spirit in him that rebelled either. But he says, God forbid that I should cease, that I should sin in ceasing to pray for you. And if you ask people to write a catalogue of sins, I guess that prayerlessness would not be on the list. 
You say, thank God I've got victory over sin. I don't smoke, I've no bad temper, I don't have this. Did you sin today by prayerlessness? You find the case again of Samson. His mother was a barren woman. There was a great need of a superman and she conceived and she brought forth Samson. Go right down to the scripture. The man we had the other night, John Baptist. His mother was old, beaten up old woman. You know, we read the Bible often, don't we, and just put it down. It doesn't thrill us too much. I, I get awfully thrilled about it. I think of Sarah going up to her husband Abraham and said, No, he went to her first and he says, I've got news for you. Oh, he said, what's the news? Are we moving again? He said, no, dear, we're not moving again. <clears throat> I've just got over that trip from out of the Chaldees. It nearly broke my heart. I've just got the garden set and a few other things. Uh, oh, we're not moving. Praise the Lord, we're not moving. Well, now what news is it? Well, he said, darling, you're going to have a baby. Have what? And I have a baby. Oh, sweetheart, she said, I forgot to send you, hmm, I forgot to send you a greeting card the other day. You were a hundred years old. I'd forgotten about that. And I'm eighty, and we're going to have it. Oh, wait till I ride home and tell my mother about this. She's going to say something, isn't she? I told you in the first place not to marry a preacher, and nuts anyhow. And he took you all that way to order the Chaldees, and now you're going to have a baby. Marvelous. Hmm? But he came along all right. What an amazing child. You know, talking of get well cards reminded me just the, how often, as our dear pastor said tonight, we substitute, as I said this morning, in the Christian life, you watch this, write it on a piece of paper maybe, the good is the enemy of the best. Satan won't tempt you to get drunk. He'll tempt you to go to the Smiths up the road and listen to two records and somebody's tape when you should be making intercession. It's the good that's the enemy of the best in the Christian life. The books are all right. Mine particularly, but anyhow, good books are all right, but they're no substitute for the Word of God. Records are all right, but they're no, good, uh, no substitute for a song in your heart. What writes me about a lot of the modern singing is this. When I was a kid, you know, people used to have nights of prayer. They, they, they couldn't su sustain a two hours prayer now, but they can stay all night at a, at a gospel sing and pray five bucks to go. Yeah, there were some wonderful songs, but I, I'd lost taste. I spit them out nearly. Do you know why? Because some folk that wrote them that were unknown a few years ago, they'll take a trio to a church and ask uh, $5,000 for the weekend. Forget it. I'm not interested. Not selling the blood of Christ as far as I'm concerned. Now, I, I, I would go to a shop and get a, a, a birthday card for my wife. Sure. I get a get well card for a friend, but I wouldn't let anybody else write my love letters, would you? Supposing you were away and you said, uh, Mary Jane, I'm, uh, I love you dear, I'm very busy. Uh, I've got two men coming and I've got to play golf with a guy for business this afternoon. So I've asked the man... Uh, he was sitting there in the hotel. I said, hey, are you busy? And he said, no. I said, would you write a love letter to my wife? I said, sure, what's her name? Sue. And he, ooh, he piles it on all gooey and, you know, puts a lot of barbed wire at the bottom and sends the letter. And uh, and you read it and say, this is fantastic. My my husband never did all like this. 
And she gets on the phone and says, Hey, sweetheart, this letter, what, what happened? Have you had a, a baptism of love or something? This is an amazing letter. And you, you say, Well, sweetie, I didn't write it. I got a friend to... You got a what? Huh? Do you, do, you, do you want somebody else to write your love letters to God? All right, this woman has prayed. Look at the ingredients. She's prayed with sorrow. She's prayed with, she's been provoked. Ha ha! She made a vow to the Lord. Don't make them. Better not to vow than uh, vow and not, uh, not, not fulfill the vow the word of God says. Give me the child. I'll give him back to thee. Are you going to suggest she did that easily? Are you going to suggest every year she made him a coat and took it to the sanctuary? Her heart didn't ache as she came back without the child. She made her vow. She kept her vow. The glory of God had departed. But read the book through before you get to the third chapter. God has come back again to the temple. Why? Because one woman prevailed and travailed. And God restored the authority of the prophet. Do you know why she prayed the greatest prayer? Because she never said a thing. Do you know why she prayed the greatest prayer? Because she lay there in her grief and the man of God came and said, you know, I don't like this woman coming every day. I think she's drunk. She muttered, but, 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 never said a word. The greatest prayers in the word of God have no language. There's a poem that says, what am I, an infant crying in the night, an infant crying for a light, with no language but a cry. Brother Elder, my wife was saying she saw their baby today, lovely baby. Should be with a daddy like mummy like that. Supposing, how long was the baby, six months, five months, and six months. Supposing in the middle of the night, the little boy, little girl, little boy yells out, Elder, and I want the light. He'd say to his wife, did you hear a voice? Yeah. Well, you better go in the room. A little fellow sits up, he says, hey, Dad, I need a light. I think Dad's light would go out. You don't expect him to ask for a light. He's afraid and, 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 and he, he yells and Mother says, uh, it's fear. Put the light on. Quit crying. Now after he cries and uh, Ellen says, oh, what's wrong? Did he leave the light on? Yeah, he's hungry. What did he say? Mom, bring me a bottle. Boy, she'd be startled if he did. He has no language but a cry. He cries in pain with one voice. He cries for a feed with another voice. He cries uh, for loneliness in another voice. He has no language but a cry. But the instinct of the mother knows the language of the child. We don't move God with eloquence. Some people can paint stained glass windows nicer than these things behind with words. You don't impress God. I'm so thrilled. It thrills me to death. You can't impress God. Your prayers are not more valid because you earn a thousand dollars a day than the man down there that sells newspapers at the corner. You're not more impressive to God because you have a PhD or an XYZ. Doesn't make any odds to God. You see, some people that think that prayer is a position. You've got to kneel. Or you've got to face to the east. Prayer is not a position, it's a disposition. It's not an attitude, it's an attitude. 
This woman prayed. Why? It wasn't only her barrenness, but in Israel, the priests were corrupt. And Eli refused to deal with his sons and they corrupted further. This little woman cried. This little woman prayed. She had no language. Oh, you mentioned about, you shouldn't pray like that tonight. You got me excited. Sitting down with Moses. I'm going to talk to him for about 10,000 years. So if you see me, would you keep your nose out of it a bit till I've asked him a few questions? I want to ask him a lot of questions and about his prayer life. When God said, uh, Moses, come here a minute, talk to you. God ever say that to you? Or are you too busy to listen? Moses, I'm sick to death of the corruption of these people. I've delivered them again and again and again and every time. Now look, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to rub them out, just like you rub a mark out off the wall. Rub them out! And out of your loins, I'm going to make a far greater nation. If he'd had half an ounce of carnality in him, he'd have said, well, hallelujah, I've been waiting for you to say that. I can't wait till I stand there tomorrow and say, listen, you backslidden folk. Two million of you are going to burn in hell forever, and I'm glad it's what you deserve. But me? I'm so sanctified, the Lord is going to preserve me. And not only preserve me, he's going to produce a new race out of me. And God says, come on. You see, one of the greatest things in the world is when God reaches down and takes hold of a man. There's only one thing greater, and that's when a man takes hold of God. And there's a paraphrase in the old Methodist hymn book about that situation. Let Moses in the spirit groan, and God cries out, let me alone. That isn't, that, that isn't Moses squealing because God has a grip on him. It's God squealing because Moses has a grip on him. Let Moses in the spirit groan, and God cries out, let me alone. You see, the prophet Isaiah talks about praying concerning the work of my hands. Command ye me. When were you last in a prayer meeting that was bathed with tears or somebody got angry over the monopoly of the devil in the world? Prayers don't move God because they don't move us. If they don't move us, they never move God. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean exciting language, but deep down there in your spirit, what we said there in Romans 8, with, with groanings which cannot be uttered, it's the language of the Spirit. The Spirit groans. The whole creation is groaning. We groan within ourselves. It's an orchestration of groaning. We want birth without pregnancy. We want birth without pain. There is no revival that's ever been in history that isn't preceded by traffic. At least I can't find one. This woman doesn't care a hill of beans about the man of God. She prays. Read to the end of the chapter. She comes in church one day with a baby and uh, she doesn't say it any sarcastic bit away. She says, for this child I pray. When you can produce the answer to prayer, does it matter what folks say? For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me the petition that I asked of him. Yes, she'd watch the other woman, not as attractive, the other woman getting more clothes, but not, not getting as many clothes, not getting as much attention of the husband. But she did have a bunch of children around her skirt. And every time she heard the laughter of those children, she was sour in her own spirit. Look at my sister's condition. The same with Rachel, wasn't it? 
I think that's one reason why it's good to read the uh, history of revivals. They're provoking. They get under my skin. They hurt me. Why is there no movement of God today as in former days? This country has had some of the greatest revivals in history because it's had some of the greatest praying men in history. I told you the other night when they buried Payson, they found at the side of his bed there was a hard floor like this. They found two long grooves. They found his kneecaps were like a camel's. And the kneecaps had got hard by rubbing in those grooves at the side of his bed where he used to pray with fervency. John Hyde. The lady asked me in a conference one day, did you ever meet John Hyde? I said, no, I wish I'd rather meet John Hyde than meet the President of the United States. Did you meet him? Yes, I met him at the Cyclot Convention in India. And she said, a friend of mine, she said, they, they used to say to him, Brother John, you will be at the conference next year, God willing. I can remember when they used to invite me to go to conferences to sing. Don't do that anymore, I'll tell you that. And then they invited me to go to conferences to preach. They didn't ask him to go to sing. They didn't ask him to go to preach. They asked him to go to pray. And one man said to him one day, would you grant me a favor? Could I pray with you tomorrow? And he said, yes, yes, you could pray with me about a quarter to ten tomorrow morning in a little room at the back of the auditorium. The man said, I went along. Got there at quarter to nine and he was praying and I nestled up near to him and and I waited till ten o'clock and I thought, oh, well, he's waiting for me to pray, Scott. <clears throat> so he said, I prayed. About ten minutes and I was washed up, worn out, didn't know what else to say, so I quit. Apparently you know what I'm talking about. Well, anyhow, <clears throat> uh, he said I prayed about ten, fifteen minutes and that was it. Then he said, John began to pray. Oh, my. Oh, my. I couldn't believe my ears. Hmm. This a man praying? I, am I imagining myself in Gethsemane? Isn't this man a Hercules carrying the weight of the world? Is this man a, a filling up the sufferings of Christ? And then he said, No, I'm not going to the door. I'll never get back to pray with this man. He'll never let me know. I'm not going to the door. I'll keep knocking. I'm not going. I'm not going. Somebody put their head around the door and said, Brother Hyde, you're to speak on prayer, you know, this afternoon at three o'clock. Ten minutes of three. The man said, ten minutes of three. That's stupid. Started praying at ten o'clock. It can't be much more than eleven at the most. Mr. Hyde got up very quietly. Hadn't a word to say. Walked out to the auditorium. He said, I looked at my watch. Five minutes to three. From 10 to 11 to 12 to 1 to 2 to 3. He prayed all that time. The end bounds was very much the same. 
Bound says that God killed a man in this country for praying. Think you would? Well, argue with Bound's not me. Who did God kill? Stonewall Jackson. Why? Because every major prayer that he prayed, God answered. Then he was praying for something God didn't want, and God either had to break the man's heart or kill him, so he killed him. That's a bound set. This woman prayed, all right. I said there are three things about natural birth. Conception, gestation, birth. The same thing happened in revival. Conception. Why did Jesus come through the body of the Virgin Mary? It wasn't spectacular. He's going to come with 10,000 of his saints. Why didn't he come that way the first time he'd have captured the world? Came to a little maiden. To everybody else, a doubtful pregnancy. But she carried the child and brought forth the Christ of God. You see, this figure is carried out in the word of God. When Zion travelled, she brought forth children. On one occasion the word says that she travelled and she had no strength and brought forth wind. But in the normal things, travel precedes the birth of the child. I'm convinced this with all, whether you agree or not, doesn't bother me anyhow. But from history and from the Bible and from the fact that every church should have a little spiritual nursery. It should have mothers in Israel and fathers in Israel that can get spiritually pregnant and bring to birth. Preaching won't do it, heaven knows. If preaching could bring revival, we ought to have had revival years ago. If singing could do it, with more singing groups have ever had in history. But neither of them do it. Because again, God has established the virgin was a body and the Holy Ghost conceived in the Virgin Mary. All right, the church is his body. And the church is always likened to a woman because she brings to birth. And you can't say how long that period will be in which there is a spiritual pregnancy in the church. But if the Holy Ghost conceives it, there will be birth. Now, you can't have birth in any normal way when it comes down to this business. I remember in England we would read the newspaper and it would say, the Queen has cancelled all her engagements for the next six months. Uh-uh. going to be a prince or a princess in the royal house. I remember when Mrs. Kennedy, the last child she had, and it said that Jackie Kennedy has quit her social calendar. You say, Mr. Redner, how would I know if I'm really getting to the place where I want to, I, I want to, as it were, carry a spiritual pregnancy? I'm meaning that for the birth of how would I know? Because your life will change it, all its habits. You'll quit doing the things you've done. You'll start doing things you never dreamed of. Very often a woman is expecting a child. Suddenly uh, there are things she's liked all her life she doesn't like and there's something she's never liked that she wants. As it gets nearer to the time of birth, so much more does the pattern of life break up. Mrs. Kennedy wouldn't go water skiing because she might uh, hurt herself. She didn't ride horses. She might go over a fence and fall and injure the unborn child. And as it gets nearer and nearer to the time of birth, she sits up at night, she can't sleep, and there are all kinds of inconveniences. She can't go where she used to go. She, she sleeps when she didn't want to, and she's awake when she'd rather sleep, and the whole pattern of life is broken up. 
And by the same token, when a, when a church begins to feel the birth pangs of revival, everything's broken up. Once you get the real birth pangs of revival in this church, those lights won't go out for months. Not necessarily in this building, but in, in, in some anti room. There'll be a, a group of people who, who agree to pray. Some say from 12 at night till 2 in the morning. Some have already prayed from 9 till 12. And there'll be an endless change. Just as in the case of revival in Hernhut. When little boys and girls prayed in the anointing of the Spirit of God, prayed for hours. They want to play with dolls. They want to play with toys. They want to play with Indians and cowboys. They were taught the world was lost. They were taught that this was one of the final hours. And as a result of that, those little things grew up in the nurture and admonition and the fear of God. They grew with the concept of God's majesty and God's holiness and God's power. And the only reason they were in the world was to serve God. I wonder if that would be foreign language to your children, would it? Maybe it's foreign language to some of the daddies and mothers. You see, there is no way to get, you can't organize revival. You can't say revival will be born there, for if you do it will be born there. You can't say that's the man is the revivalist because he'll come from here. Alright, she suffered all these things. Eli thought she was drunk. Well, have you discovered the church never does anything when it's sober anyhow? What did it say about the men that came out of the upper of the drunk? I remember the first day of World War II. I was in Scotland at the head Nazarene church there, holding a meeting, and, it, uh, and the warning came out, everybody must stop and get a gas mask going home. And the pastor there, James Baxter McLagan, said, I'm picking up a, a gas mask. And I said, well, the only reason you're getting it, it's free, that's why, you're a Scotsman. No, he said, we should carry one. And I said, I'll get mine when I go home. Well, he said, do you mind if I go in this building? This is where I said, go, go ahead. He said, now look, when I come out of that light room, I, I won't be able to see it. Totally dark. Would you stand against this lamppost? I know where it is. When I come out of that door, I walk straight up there, and you'll be there. I said, fine. He went in the room. Quite a lot of people scrambling for gas masks. A streetcar came up the street without any lights on. And a Scotsman got out. He was filled with a spirit. It was the wrong spirit. <clears throat> and he staggered across the street, you know, and he, and he caught his foot and he <clears throat> put his arm around the lamppost and me as well. Suddenly realized that was, ah, he said, how are you? I said, fine. He says, well, who are you? So I told him, ah, you're not a Scotsman? No. He said, can you think? I said, no. Oh, he said, listen to me. He began to sing, uh, Maxwell Town Braves, a bonnie weather, he falls the Jew. He meant the Jew, but it was good enough for a drunk man, he got near enough anyhow. And he sang it. And when he sang, he rolled his feet and he said, can you faith? I said, no, 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 I can't do that. Hmm. Who's your favourite? Tony told him, my father was. Ah, he says, my favourite, and he goes on with a long pedigree. But his hand in his pocket, got a handful of money out. When a Scotsman money, you know, do you want the money? I said, no. Yeah, he says, you're no good, you keep saying you don't want 
and you're not as good. And he went down the road thinking, Maxwell, something to buy Now that was about ten minutes after nine at night in the dark. If I'd met that man at ten minutes past nine in the morning, he wouldn't even have acknowledged me, he wouldn't have spoken to me. Isn't it, isn't it amazing that those two things are put together? Be not filled with wine, where is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Do you know why? Because when people are filled with the Spirit, there's a recklessness. And you better watch out, because a lot of sharks around take advantage of the recklessness too. I don't care if an evangelist gets a thousand dollars a day, some of us is worth it. <coughs> but uh, it's not what you earn, it's what you do with it. I can't wait till I get to the judgment and God rolls the book out to see how much some of these guys have earned. A friend of mine was preaching in his native church a while ago. He's the, he's the favorite son. He's the only preacher that's come out of his church. And he went back to his church and had an amazing week and they took a love offering. And they gave him a nice fat cake. And the treasure said, I want to tell you something. It's only half the offering. When you told people you'll give me the offering. Yes, but it was, it was such a big offering. We didn't want to give you it all. You see, so much money's been taken. Three weeks ago, some people came here. I wouldn't tell you who the happy bunch were, but there were two of them. And they were only there three and a half days, and they got $3,500 for three and a half days. That's not bad pay. Maybe your pastor gets more, I don't know, but a thousand a day isn't bad pay for evangelists. They took it without a blush. We deserve it, of course. I mean, we're hard to get, you know. Very grateful we even came for three days. You know, the hindrances to revival, the greatest hindrance to revival made in America is evangelism. Singing groups, teens that go and raise money, live like kings. One bunch openly says that they made a million dollars in a year. One singing group. You know what I always thrills me? While evangelism costs a lot of money, revival doesn't cost one red cent. While evangelism has to be organized, revival cannot be organized. While revival is always turning around, a, 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 pardon me, while evangelism spins around a famous personality, revival doesn't do that. Very seldom has an outstanding, well-known man become a revivalist. The revivalist has made the man famous in, that, in one sense. It's not a famous man that brings revival. I don't believe anybody knew Hannah until she conceived and bore this wonderful child and bore a prophet. But you know what happens? I'm absolutely sure of this. There have been many prayer groups and they prayed and prayed and got nearly to the place of birth and then the devil got in and discouraged them and there was a, there was a miscarriage. A spiritual miscarriage. You see, the thing is, the hard thing is, the woman, it doesn't matter how painful it is, doesn't matter how lonely it is, doesn't matter how sick she gets, doesn't matter how it breaks up the program, she has to stay with that pregnancy until there's deliverance. And the devil's cute enough to get us to the place where we get weary in well-doing. And somebody comes and says, you're on the wrong trail. And somebody else comes up with another argument and we give in. Sometimes I think this is the reason why many of the, of the great prayer warriors today are women. They know more about patience and, and travail and, and waiting than the men do. Hannah prayed. And it says she rose up and she worshipped too. 
And she prayed for a child and God gave her a man-child. Another woman prays, God doesn't give her a prophet, he gives her a prime minister because that's what God needs up the road. An old woman prays and, and God violates every known law and, and Isaac is born. And then to show that it wasn't kind of a, a, an impossible thing or an isolated thing, you get the same thing again when John Baptist is born of an aged woman. I remember preaching in an Alliance church some years ago in Louisville, Kentucky. The church there is a big, fine church and the, and the front of it has a huge communion where and I spoke on Hannah one morning. The pastor of the church was sitting halfway up the aisle and when I finished, he walked down the aisle on his hands and knees and I can see him coming down. He, 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 he grabbed hold of the communion rail and he said, Oh God, don't let this church get too old to conceive. You see, there's a period in a girl's life she's too young to conceive and there's a period in a girl's life when she's too old. And churches get too old. They get stagnant. Unbelief gets in. They have no expectations. They become weary. When there's an expectation, when there's a laying hold of the word of God, the promises, the exceeding great and precious promises. I remember years ago, a man who put a slogan outside of his church, when he realized there was barrenness there, number, sure, sure, money, yes, but not life. The proof of this church is right is how many young men and women you get to the mission field with a burning vision that they don't care whether they live or die. Our dear boy came home from Mission Field not long ago. He should have been home a year to 18 months. He hadn't been home for over 10 years. And he stayed home five weeks. And his mummy was talking to him one day and he said, You know, I may never come back again. You know, originally, in the Roman Catholic Church, before a missionary went to another country, furloughs were a fairly new thing in missionary activity. We spent fortunes bringing people home. Before a man went to the mission field or a nun, they took their appendix out, all the bad teeth, everything they thought would need repairing, and shoved them on the mission field, get go away and die. And they did it. God help the church that gets to all the traffic. God help the pastor that's afraid to put a slogan at the door like this man did. This church will have a revival or a funeral, he said. But you better not to vow. You see, she made a vow. You think her heart wasn't torn when she took that child to Eli and said, here he is, this is my contribution to the temple, and I, I, I just want to come and see him every year. I'll bring him a new suit. And she saw him blossom into a fine young man. I don't know when she died. Maybe she saw him with the anointing of God. He was the one that went and anointed the king. And she could say, my God, I remember the hours that I traveled. I remember my misery. I remember the place where I said, listen, give me a child or I die. I said this, will you understand it? God does not. N-O-T, God does not answer prayer. He answers desperate prayer. As I said the other day again, I can find no trace of Jesus ever praying with his disciples. He prayed for them, but not with them. They wouldn't understand his language. People in the Chicago church didn't understand Tozer. He quit going to prayer meetings. Why? Because nobody would pray till Tozer prayed. And then when he prayed, nobody dared pray. He prayed in a dimension. 
He prayed with an anointing. He had a language that came from above. He had a groaning in his spirit. His last message to his own church was Christ's reigning authority in his church. I've been with many famous men, great men, prayed with them, talked with them. My most happy memories are when we were meeting in his office, which was about uh, from here to there, up behind his church there in Chicago. And we would talk for hours, then he'd say, let, let, let's pray, let's really speak God. Matafei was with him at the time. Man, to hear that man pray. That was before tape recorders. If we'd had one, I'd have smuggled one in my shirt and, and twitched it on, you know, and said, man, I'm going to keep this man's prayer. I get a little suspicious and weary of people who talk about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And it didn't revolutionize your prayer life, you missed it somewhere. We talk about tongues, we talk about interpretation, we talk about prophecies. Do you know what Jude says? The epistle of Jude, that little book before the revelation, is a whole epitome of the whole Bible. And it talks there about praying in the Holy Ghost. I believe in eternity there's going to be an instant replay of all our lives. My, my, my. I, 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 boy, nobody will dare talk to me then. I'll dig him in the ribs if he does. No, nobody will talk. We'll be too, we'll be too amazed when we're in eternity. Now, I'll be sitting on my chair or throne. I might have a throne. How do you know? Somebody's going to rule over the, uh, some sections. But I, I, I'll sit there on my chair. And the Lord says, now, now, Gabriel, let's have a replay of the prayers of that little man, David Brainerd. Hmm? I, I, I was in a church not long ago. And I, and I mentioned, I didn't know a thing about the church. And I mentioned in that church, I said, you know, uh, we went to a house and, and the man was sitting in a preacher's chair. You know, lazy boy chair. The congregation laughed. They said, Mr. Raymond, we just bought him a lazy boy chair last week for his birthday. They bought the pastor a lazy boy chair. How would I know that? <clears throat> no, he had no lazy boy chair. He had a coat. You know what it was? It was the skin of a cow that he had beaten out till it was supple and soft. And he wrapped it round himself. And he had a piece of cord. And he wrapped it round himself. He had a Lincoln Continental. It was a little mare about this size. A little horsey rode everywhere. And he said he prayed when the snow was up to his chin and pressing on his breast. And he was in such agony for those Indians that when he finished praying he could only touch the snow with the tips of his fingers. Because he was a strong man. He weighed about a hundred pounds. He had a bark like a wolf. He was torn with tuberculosis. So were many of the greatest men in history, sick men, weak men. The comparable figure in, 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 in the history of Scotland was Robert Murray McShane. He died at the age of 29. But he didn't die till the whole city had been moved under the power of God. A whole city. They prayed. I, 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 I said before God, it's a language we don't know. It's an experience we don't teach. Travail of spirit, praying with groanings that cannot be uttered. But all these mixtures that are found here in this marvelous, marvelous chapter. Read them, dissect them, meditate on them. 
you know, there's prayer and there's supplication and there's petition and there's intercession. There's praying. Jude says, praying in the Holy Ghost. When you're praying the Holy Ghost, you never pray a thing for yourself. When you grow up in spirit, you never say, Lord, bless me. Because you don't care whether he blesses you or not. What you pray is, make me a blessing. And in the process of making you a blessing, you're blessed. You can pray until you want to be blessed like a little child wants a gift every time it, it comes home. Every time daddy comes home. This same type of praying, let me finish, this same type of praying was known to the Apostle Paul. That ninth chapter in Romans, to me, is, is always a staggering chapter. Do you remember what he prayed? He's praying for Israel and he said, I could wish myself a curse. Do you know what the real word is? I said I'd write an article on it, but I don't know if any editor would take it. I'd write an article and I'd, I'd give it this title, Well, I'll be damned. That's not good language, is it? Scriptural language. That's what he says. I could wish myself a nothing, a curse for my brethren. Madam Gillen says, if, if, if the state in heaven is restricted, well, send me to hell and let somebody enjoy Jesus in heaven. I've enjoyed him so much on earth, the memory in hell would be sweet. Hmm? Little petite, beautiful French lady praying like that. I'm not suggesting I've got there, don't think that. But I'm telling you that such was a love for Christ, such was a love for lost people, they'd miss so much. Let me go to perdition if need be, and the memory, the hangover, from all the ecstasy. You see, she knew how to worship. She knew what adoration was. She knew what travel was. People said when she wrestled in prayer, she literally wrestled with the devil. And you could hear her something on the floor in the room upstairs as she wrestled. Now, I don't care who you know, if you don't know God. As I said in that majestic prayer of Jesus, one of the great themes in the, what we call the high priestly prayer, John 17, he, he says, Father, that they may know thee. Does it matter who you know if you don't know God? Does it matter if you don't know if you do know him? Now, I don't care who you know if you don't know God. And I don't care where you're known if you're not known in hell. Particularly as a preacher or an evangelist. If you're not known in hell, I don't think you're worth a hill of beef. I read it this afternoon, 19th chapter in the Acts of the Apostles. So men tried to get in on the deal. Have you heard what happened? In order to make money, cast out demons, heal the sick. Okay, these seven brothers got together and decided they'd do it. And they found a man demon-possessed, and so they went up to him and they tried, it's the exorcist. They tried to get the demons out, and even demons have a bit of respect. You know what they did? Just what I'd do if I was demons. They jumped on the guys and beat them up. Isn't it amazing? Invisible demons tore the clothes off them and wounded them. And they fled out of the house screaming and naked. Even the demons were insulted because somebody tried to put someone over on them. They used the name of Jesus and they had no authority. And they got hold of those men and they stripped off their clothes, those invisible fingers, clawed the clothes off the men. And then they beat them and wounded them. And when the men went out of the house, the demons screamed out to them, Paul I know, and Jesus I know, but who are you? In other words, they said, you've no authority. We've suffered at the hands of Jesus. We've suffered at the hands of the Apostle Paul. Sure, we talked with Jamie Buckingham today. He's writing a book on angels. 
I said after Billy Graham wrote his book on angels, we get a dozen. You know, somebody writes on demons, you get 50 books on demons. But Buckingham had started his book on, on, on angels five years ago, long before Billy Graham started. And I went and had a little time of prayer for him. And the word that came to me as, a, as, as I prayed was this. I sent a telegram to heaven. I said, Father, help him to write a book on, on angels that will scare demons. Write a book on angels that will make demons mad. You say, will they read it? I don't know what they read. But I'll tell you what, they can feel the effect of it. That's why God brought him here this afternoon, because his book was biased. He said, oh, now I see the other side, what we have to do. We've got to deal with fallen, fallen spirit, evil spirit. If you knew what was going on in the heavenlies right now, either as a Christian you'd just say, Hallelujah, I know what God's doing, or you'd be scared to death. Do you believe that there is a demon power that rules over Titusville? Huh? Do you think all you have to do is just say, Lord Jesus, bless Titusville today, bless the pastor, help the choir to sing, and bless Bill as he leads the song, we enjoy it so much, amen. Do you think that scares the devil? I doubt if it does any good, to be honest. One of the perfect characters, the most perfect characters in the Bible was Daniel. Huh? I'd like to have heard him pray, wouldn't you? Do you know what he says? He says, the prince of Persia, up in the sky there, resisted him for three weeks. Hmm? Did you ever pray and feel you haven't gotten through for three weeks? Most of us, you don't get through in three minutes. We're ready to cry or call the pastor. And he resisted and he resisted and he resisted. And all the time he fought, Satan fought back. And the prince there in the air resisted, but he got through. I said to Jamie, I said, Jamie, you know, one of the staggering things about the word of God to me is this. Oh, it may not affect you, I don't know. But you know, Jesus said, you say you're saved and filled with the Spirit. Well, you've got a lot more responsibility than anybody else. And one thing that Jesus says, I give you power over the enemy, no, over A-L-L, over all the power of the enemy. I said to Jamie too, I said, you know, Jamie, a lot of sermons uh, that are born die. A lot of them are still born. A lot of them shouldn't be born. But I'll tell you what, you may have prayed a prayer ten years ago and it hasn't been answered yet. Now let me tell you something, God's got it on file. How do you know? Because Revelation says, what are these under the altar? The prayers of the saints. You never prayed a prayer that God didn't register. Did you ever pray the prayer of the psalmist when he said, store my tears in my bottle? Hmm? You never shed a tear, but what an angel picked it off your cheek and stored it up there in eternity for the record. When him writer talks of Jesus, who every grief hath known that wrings the human breast and takes and bears them for his own, that all in him may rest. One thing I'm through, we were talking about Duncan Campbell this afternoon. The man that had revival in the Hebrides. He was in a church one night that was packed, he tried to preach, God seemed a million miles away, and he called on a boy, 16 years of age, John Smith, that was his real name, John Smith, would you pray? There were deacons and elders there from the Presbyterian church and the free church, but he wouldn't ask them. He asked a 16-year-old schoolboy to pray. And the boy got up and said, Ah, 
what's the good of praying if we're not right with God? And he read and quoted the 24th Psalm, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Prayer is the most demanding thing in the world. Before you can go to God, you start with clean hands. That's your relationship with the world, a pure heart relationship with God. Holiness is a right disposition in our spirits toward God. Righteousness is right relationships with men. The boy stood up and quoted Psalm 24. And when he finished, he started to pray in that crowded church. He prayed 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. And when it finished, it was just as though God pulled a switch in heaven. God came down on the community. Not on the church. Did you notice what I said? He came on the community. He came on the dance hall at the end of the road. He came on the tavern at this end of the road. He came on the home. Revival was born. And Duncan had such amazing stories of how God answered prayer. There's a girl in Africa this, after, this, this evening. Her name is Mary Morrison. She's married now, she wasn't then. She worked with a faith mission. And she had a, 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 a girlfriend called Wilson and they sent them out two by two. Two men, one area, two girls in another. And these girls went to an island and they worked there for eight years. Hardly saw comfort. There were some big rocks like this at the seashore and those girls would go behind the rocks and, and, and groan. The waves would spray over them, the sun would blister them. They stayed praying year after year after year. One day their superintendent came and he said, um, you girls, you're even noted for your piety here and you're praying and we're going to move you to another island because you've broken up the fallow ground and you've sowed the seed and you've been so faithful. We thought we'd send you to another area where you can reap. That's about as stupid as you can get, isn't it? If you took a piece of virgin ground up there and you tore all the trees up and you got the rocks out and you, you fertilized it, would you go to Arkansas to reap your harvest? You'd stay there where you'd broken up the fallow ground, where you'd sowed the seed. Paul plants the polished waters. They begged to stay in the island and they stayed. Eight years, nine years, ten years, eleven years. It got to twelve years. They decided to have a conference. They brought Duncan Campbell over to speak and the people crowded in. One night while they were sitting there, Mary had had a marvellous meeting with God. She was a, a brilliant dancer. She danced on swords, you know, with a kilt. She was, she was that and she could sing. And when she was on stage, somebody asked her to go ahead and, ah, uh, she says, I'm not going to church. I'm not going to the church. There were five of the girls. The other four said, we're going. She says, oh, I'm not going. Why not? Ah, she says, if we go to the church now, it's late. The church is the church. They'll take us right up to the front pew. Stick us right under the preacher's nose. You see, five of us going. You know, they'll say, uh, the Lord has uh, somehow told me tonight to pray on the, to preach on the five foolish birds. The girl said, oh, don't be silly. He wouldn't do a thing like that. Oh, well, I've got to keep it quiet. They marched in and sat there and old Duncan gets up and he says, it seems very clear tonight. I had a word from the Lord early this morning that just knew he told me to preach on the five foolish virgins. Oh. Terrible. And she thought she resisted God. She didn't go back for weeks. And she went back one night under pressure. Her name was Mary. 
And again, as he go up on the, uh, to the front. And he said, tonight the Lord has changed my message. I have to preach tonight. On Mary, the Master has come and called us for thee. Getting a bit personal, isn't it? Got down from five to one. He got saved that night. He's a fantastic preacher. Because you can't preach. If you're a Baptist lady, you can't preach. He just let them go to the mission field and tire themselves out to preach. <coughs> they can't preach in our pulpit. Miss Bertha gets away with it. That's all right, I'm glad she does. All right, Mary Morrison has been on this island with this other lady for 12 years. Duncan Campbell has preached in the power of the Spirit. They've sung their hymns and as they're singing, he nudges Mary Morrison and he says, I have no word from the Lord. You better preach. Oh, no, no, this is a conference. You came from Scotland, you've got to preach. No, ah, he says, I have no anointing. You talk about John Knox praying, give me Scotland or I die. I think the greatest thing he ever did was when, when the cathedral was packed out in Edinburgh. And he went through all the preliminaries and, and, and they sang the hymns and, and they took up the offering and he stood up and said, would you kindly stand? I've no word from the Lord. And he dismissed them without a sermon. That takes courage. You'd have warmed an old one up, wouldn't you? <coughs> but anyhow, uh, he says, uh, I've no word from the Lord. And that was it. And Mary stood up. And she said, I have a word from the Lord tonight. And she preached on Dardes and Lazarus. And Duncan Campbell said you could almost see God walk through the door while she was preaching. God came on that community. Twelve years of weeping behind rocks. Twelve years of loneliness. Twelve years of criticism. And God put it all together one night. People were marvelously, marvelously saved by the Spirit of God. See, God is never in a hurry, but he's never late. I've been praying for revival for 50 years. I feel more thrilled about it now than ever. Despite world conditions, despite the laziness of the church, and that's the crying sin of the church, a laziness after God. And not because I'm an optimist, but because I've got a book here and I stand on the book. God's going to pour out a spirit on all flesh. Not just all denominations, all flesh. Like I talked last night on vision, your young men shall see visions, your old men dream dreams, on my servants and handmaids, he's going to pour out of his spirit. It's all possible again because he died. Not only died, but he rose. Not only rose, he ascended. Not only ascended, he liveth to make intercession. I said the longest prayer meeting, <coughs> pardon me, the longest prayer meeting in history lasted a hundred years. Well, of course, that's the, that's the prayer meeting amongst men. The longest prayer meeting in history is from the time Jesus rose to this moment because he's been praying for 2,000 years. And God's going to answer his prayer. And the world is going to see the power of the risen Son of God poured out through a revived, quickened church that's going to conceive in the Holy Ghost. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. If I could just encourage you, what would it look like if you and I gave ourselves to prayer? Not just pray before bedtime or pray before meals, 
but we actually labored as an intercessor in this travail of prayer. Our world today desperately needs men and women who will give themselves to prayer. Well, for more information and show notes of this episode, you can visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 171 for episode 171. And until next time, know I am praying for you and I'm cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ.